Father in heaven, teach us now and feed us through your word. Speak through me by your spirit's power. And bless your word to the hearts and minds of all who will hear this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'd ask that you turn your Bibles this morning to Acts 28. Acts 28, the verses cited in the bulletin are verses 29 through 30. But if you're looking at your Bibles right now, what do you notice about your Bibles? Verse 29 is not there. (laughs) Is this some kind of trick? What's going on? Why is verse 29 not in your Bibles? Especially when you're looking at the end of Acts. What's going on here? Well, when you look at verse 28, you notice that Paul set forth the last call to the Jews and many rejected that call to believe in Jesus Christ. When you look at what verse 29 reads in parenthesis, it says, When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. The reason this parenthetical statement is removed from some translations is because early manuscripts do not contain this verse. By early, obviously, I mean oldest, some of the oldest manuscripts. Now, I don't know if you know this, but to date there are over 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament which contain nearly 2.6 million pages of text 2.6 million pages of text these findings of so many copies demonstrate that the new testament is the most attested most verified document the world has ever known there's not even anything close to it because this is true this discrepancy regarding verse 29 needs to be parenthetically contained as it fits the pattern of acts but it is not considered authoritative because it could be commentary, which did not actually come from Luke's pen or from Paul's voice, but later from another source. So source, one source is important, isn't it? The source is important. When we listen to the news and they say an anonymous source says this, well, who is this source? We don't want to tell you. When they don't want to tell you, why is that? Because it might be one of them fabricating a lie. Right? So the source is very important. And God is the source of life and truth. God is the source of life and truth. So I actually want to begin with the book of John. So put a marker in Acts Chapter 28, I want to look at the book of John and then I'll come back to this last scene of Paul in Acts a bit later. As you open your Bibles, I want you to consider Jesus' first miracle in John when he turned the water into wine at a wedding banquet. Why go there? You'll see as we develop through the message. It starts with Jesus' mother wanted him to help with that with the banquet and simply said to Jesus they have no more wine it's all she said is they have no more no more wine she didn't tell Jesus what to do directly the statement puts Jesus in a position of what are you going to do about this 
They have no more wine. So what are you going to do about this, Jesus? And how does Jesus respond to Mary? He responds, Woman, why do you involve me? As if to put her, his earthly mother, in a position of, why are you doing this? Is it for the Father's glory or for your glory? That's the condition. That's the situation here. This is such an unassuming, simple comment by Mary on the surface. Yet why is this miracle found only in the book of John? Why is it not in the other Gospels? You and I need to understand that the Gospel of John, albeit simply written, is a deep theological book written by an apostle who has had much time to reflect on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and is being led by the Holy Spirit in what he is writing. So when you look at John chapter 1, verse 14, John writes, The Word, as in the Word who is God, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. This is past tense. This is John looking back at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We have seen His glory, what God had done through His Son. The glory of the One and Only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's a sermon right in and of itself. Just that Jesus is full to the brim of God's grace and truth. This is so important because we need to see John looking back. Not present, not forward, but looking back in time at all that has happened through Jesus entering into this world and then ascending to the Father in heaven. One theme you see consistently through the book of John is that Jesus is the source. The source. He is the source of life. It begins in chapter 1 as Jesus is the living Word of God who shines forth the truth of heaven upon the earth and He is the source of all creation. In John 2, where we're at, Jesus turns water into wine. Why does He do that? Have you ever asked yourself, why? Well, if you want to look at this later, or you can look at it now, Old Testament passages like Isaiah 25, verse 6, Jeremiah 31, verses 12 through 14, and Joel chapter 3, verse 18, all look forward to a fruitful age of God's Messiah prophesied prophesied by the prophets represented by new wine which symbolizes new life through Jesus' blood shed for us. This is why Jesus tells Mary and those around Him, My hour has not yet come. The hour refers to His crucifixion and also to His resurrection. The running out of old wine points to the barrenness of the Judaic system in which the Jews failed to keep the Mosaic covenant or the covenant of works. They were trying to keep the law of God, but failing to do so as God would call them to repent, as God would proclaim through His prophets over and over and over again. It's not about sacrifices. It's about a contrite heart. I want you to have a contrite heart. I want you to learn how to humble yourself before Me, not just simply go through the motions of practicing these rituals thinking that that justifies you in my presence. So he would speak through his prophets over and over and over again. Repent. Don't just go through the ritual. Don't just go through the motions. Repent and turn back to me. And yet they would not. 
They rejected the prophets. Hence Mary says to Jesus, they have no more wine. God's provision through the old system is finished because he sent his son into the world to save it, to redeem it. This reality is addressed in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. The author of Hebrews says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, as I have just mentioned. Over and over again reveals how the Jews rejected the prophets, failing to heed God's word. You can consider Jesus' parable of the wicked tenants here in Matthew 21. Continued in Hebrews, but in these last days, verse 2, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through, him, through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word after He had provided purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. Does this sound familiar? Sounds like John 1 and 2, doesn't it? When you sit down, your work is done. As you get older, you realize that you don't want to sit down until your work is done because you might not get back up again. (laughs) But when you sit down, your work is done and Jesus had accomplished His work. Whereas man's power failed, God's power prevailed through His Son, Jesus the Messiah. This is the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant established with God through the righteous blood of Jesus. The Apostle Paul explains it this way in Romans chapter 8, verses 1-4. through 4. He says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, in other words, you don't have the ability to keep the law because of your sinful nature. We call that total depravity. It doesn't mean that you're as evil as you can be in this life. It just means that your sinful nature uh, does not allow you or it is not able to, to keep the law perfectly as God desires or as He requires. You are unable to keep the law. Okay? Because of your sinful nature, what nature what you are what you were unable to do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful men to be a sin offering to atone for your sin, and he, so he condemns sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. When you think about the atonement of Christ, sometimes I think of the ozone layer around the earth. It's that thin little line, but it protects us from space and all, that, all that's out there. If, if that space was to rush in through that atmosphere, through that barrier, we would be like Mars. We would be dead, right? And so the atonement of Christ makes us right in the sight of God. When He looks down upon us, He sees the righteousness of His Son. And because we're righteous, we, we, we receive the life of God through the Spirit. And the Spirit gives us life. And we're living out of that power. And the Spirit protects us and preserves us. The, the blood of Christ protects us and preserves us from the wrath and judgment of God. From all that can come crashing down to us. Because we remember that physical death is not the issue. It is the second death where you will, you will forever 
be under God's judgment and not under His grace and under His love. So the new wine symbolizes new life through Jesus' blood shed for you on the cross. The hour Jesus speaks of, as I said before, is His death and resurrection from the grave. It is where the Son, Jesus, glorifies the Father by humbling Himself even to the point of death on a cross. And it is where the Father glorifies the Son by raising Him from death to life. Both glorify each other. Jesus' resurrection shows that He has conquered the power of sin, death, and the devil's efforts to cause Him to fail. And we know what the Apostles' Creed says happened after that. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence, from this position of authority, Jesus will come back to judge the world, both the living and the dead. So in John chapter 2, verse 5, Mary tells the servants to do whatever Jesus tells them to do. We need to understand here that she's not ordering Jesus to do anything. She's telling the servants, whatever he asks, whatever he wants to do, just do it for him. So they do that. And that Jesus is doing this for his Father's glory, not because of human pressure. In verse 6, we learn that there were six large stone jars used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons of water. Jesus tells the servants to fill them to the brim, to the very top, with water. Now, why would Jesus change this water that was used for ceremonial cleansing into wine? One hymn asks the right questions. It says, are you washed in the blood? In the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? The wine represents new life through the atoning blood of Jesus. So through Christ Jesus, the law of spirit, the law of the spirit sets you free from the law of sin and death. I wanted to lead with this because the apostle Paul understands all this on both sides. He understood his status before God under the old system of striving to obey the law through the Mosaic Covenant, and he understands the new relationship that he has with God through Jesus Christ, living out of the power of God's Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul understands the difference between ceremonial washing, going through the motions, and there are people today who can profess the name of Christ Jesus, but are simply still going through the motions, thinking that their actions are what's going to make them right in the eyes of God. And Paul was one of those. And that's why Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will have no place in the kingdom of heaven. Unless it exceeds it. And when you look at the Apostle Paul, he talks about his life as a Pharisee. That as far as ritual law is concerned, he was blameless. You could look... You could stay with him, you could follow him, you could check him out at any time, and he understood the rights of the Pharisee, and he followed them to the letter. And Jesus is saying, your righteousness needs to exceed that. You need to have a pure heart, not just pure hands. So Paul understands the righteousness that exceeds the ritualistic law-keeping 
of the Pharisees, Paul understands this new life through Jesus Christ. Do you understand this life? This righteousness? Look at Acts now. Acts 28, verses 30 through 31. This is towards the end of Paul's ministry. Verse 30 says, For two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we need to understand first and foremost he couldn't leave his house. He was confined to it. A little bit stricter than our COVID protocols that we've experienced over this last year. But for those who were there in his midst. You know, there's a Roman soldier who was in his house every day and night to make sure he wouldn't escape. So that Roman soldier, whoever they were, those Roman soldiers, would have the good fortune of hearing all the conversations that Paul was having with people who would visit him. And perhaps if he's even talking to himself as he's working through writing a letter to one of the churches because he wrote four or five letters from this time of house arrest to the churches. The house arrest was there and Paul is visiting with people but Luke leaves it open as to what happened after that. He leaves it open-ended and sometimes you look at that and you ask the question, why would you do that? If, if you didn't know right offhand, you would know through the grapevine, through the Christian grapevine, what happened to the Apostle Paul. Right? Why not record you know, if, if he was put to death if he was martyred why not record things like that because the gospel was going forth the church was preaching the truth even the Jews who had rejected it still have the opportunity to hear it the gospel was being poured out upon all so Luke leaves this last chapter open and we see that Paul and the church are preaching the kingdom of God and teaching about the only way into God's kingdom, which is through the Savior, Jesus Christ. But there are no more missionary journeys for Paul. None at all. This is where he will finish. This is where he will die. Verse 31 says, you see him, you, in verse 31, you see a man who is so the NIV says, boldly and without hindrance, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe that seems routine to you, but I look at this and I'm just amazed at it. You are in Rome. The, you are in the capital city of the, of the civilized world. Caesar is Lord in Rome. And yet the Apostle Paul is preaching King Jesus Jesus is king. He is not simply just the king of this world. He is high king of heaven. And not only that, the only way into heaven is through him as Lord and Savior. Paul is preaching this with authority and without hindrance. And you ask yourself, how can he not? I just said a little bit ago that there were, there were Roman guards in there with him. And they're listening to the conversations that are taking place because you would have maybe a one-room one house that he was renting. And as they're listening, why would they allow this to go on? Why would they permit it? Why would they not strike Paul down and say, you can't talk like that. Caesar is Lord and you know this. Unless they're listening 
And as they listen, they understand that there's more to this individual than what they thought. Our most important tasks as Christians is to live out of the power of the Spirit of God and preach the good news of the gospel. That means putting Christ first in your life always. This is not an easy task as we're taught in this country to put ourselves first. I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back first. Right? But do we understand the treasure of heaven given to us, placed in these earthen vessels? Do we understand what God has given us in this world through His Son? I'm reminded of Jesus' parable that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure a man found in the field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. I've got a few questions. Question one, why would a man sell all that he had in order to purchase the field that contained the treasure? Why would you do that? Because you understand that the treasure is worth more than all you have. Paul at one point talks about his life. And you like to think about your accomplishments, especially when you're getting towards the end of your life. But he's looking at his accomplishments as a Pharisee, which I know he worked very hard for. People who are zealous for the law are very focused and work very deliberately to keep the law. And they're proud of their righteousness. They're proud of their conduct. And so the Apostle Paul is looking at his life as a Pharisee. Some people would look at him as a Pharisee and say, that's a good man. That's a righteous man. Man, I wish other people in this world were like that person over there who keeps the law, who, who, who obeys it, who has integrity. And yet Paul looks at his life before and he says it's like waste material. It's like garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing the righteousness of Christ Jesus. So he's willing to forsake all of this in order to receive this. In order to receive this gift of life through Jesus Christ that surpasses anything that he could have even dreamed of doing in his life. Well, question two. Why was that field for sale if there was a treasure in it? Have you ever asked that question? Why was this field even for sale if there was a great treasure in it? Had someone been trying to keep it safe and forgotten about it? Or did the people who owned the field not know what they had? John chapter 1, verses 11-13 through 13 says, Jesus came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. Yet to all who receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. The Apostle Paul was preaching Christ boldly because he knew the treasure that was within him. He knew what God had given him. And he was pouring it out on all who came to see Him. Pouring here refers not to just simply speaking the gospel, but living it, showing it. When you have a glass and you want some water, it's not a sprinkling, and you don't throw a bucket over it 
right? You pour into it so that the person may be refreshed. When we think about the gospel working through our lives, it's about pouring what God has given us into others, investing what God has given us into others, starting with our children, starting with our church community and family, our neighbors and beyond. But the poor is not simply to declare who Christ Jesus is, but to show them who Christ Jesus is by how we live, by our conduct. As we, we look to the law, we heard those words that we are to pray for our enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, to love them. We are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We are to show forth grace. And that is the power of the Gospel. The power to forgive the power to love, even when those who are uh, contrary to us hate us, that we can love them still in order to bring the message of life to them through Jesus Christ. Well, Paul is continuing to pour out the good news of the Gospel day in and day out until the Lord comes to take him home. On John Calvin's deathbed, his friends pleaded with him to cease from his labors in order to conserve his strength. They wanted to keep him here in this world as long as they could because they loved him. They loved him as as their pastor, as a theologian and teacher. They loved him as a person. And Calvin replied, What? Would you have me have the Lord find me idle when he comes? (laughs) Would you have the Lord find me idle when he comes? John Calvin is saying, I will pour out every last drop of what God has given me until my body can give no more and Jesus comes to take me home. Finish as you began the race. For Jesus, a life that is true. Striving to please Him in all that you do. Yielding allegiance, glad-hearted and free. This is the pathway of blessing for Thee. O Jesus, Lord and Savior, I give myself to Thee. For thou and thy atonement didst give thyself for me. I own no other master. My heart shall be thy throne. My life I give henceforth to live, even unto death. O Christ, for thee alone.